And welcome to episode 149 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we embark on a weekend getaway that gets more than a little out of hand with our review of the A24 crime comedy, Zola. But first, how are you, Scott? Doing pretty well. I'm impressed that you managed to restrain yourself on any puns that you might have done there with strippers and dicks and everything that we're going to be talking about soon. Uh, So feeling good about that. Feeling good about the 4th of July weekend. I've had a little bit of a resurgence in my movie watching recently, as I'm sure as an avid follower of my letterbox, Scott, I know that you're constantly refreshing my letterbox page. Uh, but yeah, I've been Always. watching a lot, watching a lot of movies re- recently after F9. I just had to find out if the rest of the Fast and Furious franchise was as bad as no, F9. you did not. You did not have to. I felt compelled. And Scott, as as average to below average, a lot of those movies are, I will say that they have been scratching an itch. They've been scratching an itch that I feel like has not been scratched yet for like summer movies, summer movies, like fun, turn your brain off at the end of a long day of work, watch something fun. So many 90s action movies you could be watching instead. Hey, you know what? Ne- next year this time, I'm not going to have the Fast and Furious franchise that I haven't watched to, to watch. And maybe ni- the summer of 90s action films will come back for me next year. It all takes time. I've actually like, I feel like I've like seen half of like all of those movies. Like never actually watched all of them, but I like seen half of them growing up, like on TNT or wherever, yeah, FX or wherever they were showing. Movies, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's gonna be interesting to then like remember what I had sort of half watched in those whenever I get around to watching them. But uh, yeah, really the only really good one outside of the original so far that I've watched. I've watched through Fast Six, Furious Six, or Fast and Furious Six, whatever the hell they call it. Is Fast Five? That's a good film. Fast Five is is, is quite good. Uh, that's the one yeah, where they're as, in they're in Rio. As I think I said before, five and seven were the ones that stood out to me as being good on my memory. But even yeah. those, I barely recall that much about them. That's yeah. just kind of the way that franchise goes for me. But yeah, I mean, I can't. <laughs> I watched Tokyo Drift last night, and because I'm watching them in chronological order rather than like the order they were released, mm-hmm. and Man, it's like so funny how just horrible a place that series must have been in to get to Tokyo Drift, where like I think Vin Diesel like pretty much was like, no, I'm not going to do another one right now. Like Paul Walker wasn't interested. And so they recruit like all these people never in the franchise before. I mean, just incredible. And like Lucas Black is atrocious in the film, like absolutely atrocious. But the drifting is cool. Like that's a cool mix up in the series from like the more traditional street racing that they'd done in the other ones. It was like refreshing to see that. And then Sun Kang, man, I'm like all aboard the justice for Han train, like one of the best parts of the series. And the fact that they paint themselves in a corner with that character or they have to retcon the, what happens is just hilarious to me. It's just so such, such poor franchise planning. I'll take your word for it, Scott. Uh, I'm not going to be exploring those movies anytime soon. Um, That's fine. But yeah, you know, to to each your own, I guess, you know, as long as you're enjoying it, relatively speaking, that's what matters. But look, I think that I'm not I'm going to go on a limb here and say that, like, I still have fun with two to two and a half star movies. Sometimes they like check a box. We move on. I don't think about them too much after the fact. Whereas I feel like if you watched a movie that you rated like two or two and a half stars, like you really didn't have a good time with that movie. You did not enjoy the experience. Well, again, yeah, that just speaks to our, the difference in our yeah, that's in what our I'm saying. Curves. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Like there, there are aspects of most movies. I'd say definitely two and a half stars and above that I like. I actually probably like still enjoyed the movie for the most part. Some exceptions, not always true. But with this kind of movie, with like the Fast and Furious franchise, it can be two and a half stars and still have checked the box for me on that particular evening. Yeah, see, again, it's just the difference in our approaches, because if it checks the box for me, then it's getting three and a half stars. Like, that counts for something. Like, it, it could be right. objectively a bad movie. But um, anyway, nobody wants to hear this debate. Um, Honestly, people they, might enjoy this debate more than our podcast, typically, Scott. Who knows? No, <laughs> I, I don't think they will. But uh, what yeah. they hopefully will enjoy is our review of Zola, uh, which was one of my most anticipated movies of last year, 2020. 
Premiering at Sundance in 2020, director Janixa Bravo's Zola made waves as the first major feature film to be based off of a Twitter thread. The thread in question was an epic 148-tweet odyssey published in 2015 by a 20-year-old woman named Asia Zola King that tells the apparently true story of a weekend in Florida gone horribly wrong. The film follows the thread closely with Taylor Page starring as the titular Zola, a waitress who makes some extra cash in the evenings by stripping at local clubs in her hometown of Detroit. One night, a fellow exotic dancer happens into Zola's restaurant and initially enchants Zola with her in-your-face personality. This is Stephanie, played by Riley Keough, and after the two enjoy an evening together, Stephanie calls Zola with a business opportunity. Her roommate knows the club scene in Miami and swears that Zola and Stephanie can make the big bucks by dancing at some specific clubs. Zola decides to tag along on the weekend getaway, which also includes Stephanie's aforementioned roommate, a loose cannon simply known as X, played by the always electric Coleman Domingo, and Stephanie's dopey boyfriend, Derek, played by Nicholas Braun. It doesn't take long into the road trip before Zola starts to realize that something is not right about Stephanie and the mysterious X. And over the next two days, she finds herself swept into a chaotic world of guns, sex, and fear that she could never have bargained for. Scott, does this buzzy ripped from social media tale live up to the hype that its source material garnered? Or did Zola's aggressive energy have you looking for the block button after mere minutes? Great question. I think that uh, this movie really worked for me. It was a really fun time. And I walked into the theater knowing what I was going to get. I think like it's not going to it's like when A24 is tagged onto a label, even with a movie like this, like there's going to be a certain vibe about it. I think it's fair to say. And that movie. Here we go. A24 vibes. That movie delivers delivers the vibe. Um, Like just imagine if like, I don't know. Disney made, I mean, Disney's such a silly thing. Probably the sign, not the right compared. Paramount made this movie. It'd probably end up being sold to Netflix and be like the Lovebirds or some crap. Yeah. Like, like honestly. Uh, but no, like, w- what you get is a film with a director, with a cast, with seemingly like writers and producers who like know what the film is. And I think what it's able to deliver is a film that like straddles the fence of like not taking itself too seriously while still being like, true and authentic to like the crazy story uh, that that is this, uh, you know, 148 tweet thread about this weekend in, in Tampa that <laughs> I can't even believe it. I mean, the person, the premise of it is just crazy that she even goes with this. That Zola even goes with this girl at all. Yeah. Like, I actually had forgotten until you were just talking about it. Like they're in Detroit. Like I, I, I hadn't appreciated yeah. how long the freaking drive is. Um, I mean, they're literally traveling, driving across the country. To- yeah. Cause I mean, they get there in the dead of the, mor- the like, night despite leaving pretty early in the morning from what you can tell i think it's like an overnight thing too i think that they like slept in the car too i think i don't know it, it, a lot yeah, of time passed in the car and yeah. uh you know the fact that this person would go at all when you know basically they met because she waited her table <laughs> like for lunch the day before or dinner the day before or whatever um just just crazy well yeah i mean there is that I don't know. Like, I, it didn't go exactly where I where I thought it was going to go in terms of their relationship because there was there was kind of like a sexual tension between the two of them in like that very first scene in the restaurant, but they never followed through on that. But I don't know. I've, oh, I I uh, I don't. I mean, you may not have picked up. Yeah, I, I I didn't I mean, get that. I, I may not have. I, I may be way off base with what I saw, but that was kind of one of the things that I thought might might have been motivating um, Zola potentially. I think that's an interesting that's an interesting angle. Um, I didn't think about that, but I'm not going to say it wasn't there. I just kind of viewed it as like this, like weird awkwardness of particularly Stephanie as like a human being. I don't know. There's a better way to put that, but you absolutely could be right. You know, I, I I didn't read that, but I'm not going to say it wasn't there either because there has to be some explanation for them doing this, but, or maybe there's not. And that's like the real life of it all. It's like, she just sent it on this like crazy decision to like go to Tampa because I guess she wanted a weekend. Um, full of excitement and maybe a lot of money. I don't know, but certainly got more than she bargained for. I think Taylor page is appropriately unknown for this role. Like I can't imagine like, I I mean, Riley Keough is like, and Coleman Domingo are like semi famous at best. And like, they're like the right range. Like any, any person like tier above that would be like really awkward and out of place. I say that, but (laughs) Nicholas Braun is 
hilarious is. I mean, like, I know you haven't watched Succession, Scott, but I literally just watched Succession and it is hilarious <laughs> um, that Nicholas Braun, his cousin Greg in Succession is in this film and like more or less playing the same like dopey idiot guy who stumbles around um, similar characters. And it really worked for me because that character, as much as there are some misses in, in the show for his humor, like the dopiness really worked, I think. Um, and is appropriate for someone who would be still dating Stephanie after all the crap that I'm sure he puts, uh, she puts him through in their relationship. Just hilarious to me. Uh, overall, the movie's a great time. I'd strongly recommend it if you, you know, just want to have a, a nice, fun, breezy 85 minutes to take out the credits. Um, great time. Not a perfect film, but certainly an enjoyable one and one that I could totally see myself, you know, revisiting, maybe even while it's still in theaters. Yeah, this is so much fun, this movie is. It really, to answer my own question, it lives up to the hype of what I wanted from this movie. When I first heard about it, you know, I heard about it coming out of Sundance last year. Um, I knew it was based off of a Twitter thread. I specifically did not read the Twitter thread. And, you know, I consider myself to be a pretty online person. And, yeah, uh, totally. you know, I usually know what's going on on Twitter. I, you know, I'd never heard about this thread back in 2015 when it was um, going down. So I didn't know the story. I went in completely cold, which is how I wanted it. Um, and yeah, it's pretty wild. And yeah, almost all of it is true. Like it, what you see in the movie v follows very closely with what actually well, yeah. happened. To the extent uh, that the threat is true, the movie yes. is also true. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I mean, and we don't have to get into that. You know, apparently there have been quite a few things from the thread that ha have been verified. Uh, sure. Yeah, like sure. as being accurate as much as you can verify, you know, something like this after the fact. But yeah. there are a couple of differences which we can talk about later. Um, you know, it's somewhat semantic. But yeah, the movie is a ton of fun. It's funny. Um, the the dialogue is very um I, I said this to somebody the other day, the comedy, like 90% of the comedy in this movie comes from people saying stuff that sounds wrong coming out of their mouths. Um, because so first of all, you have Coleman Domingo who like when he gets angry goes into this like African accent that is just like, what in the world? Um, you know, it just comes out of nowhere. Like when he starts, I can only presume it's his like, like real yeah. accent, like the character's real accent or whatever. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But when he's trying to like be intimidating, he just all of a sudden goes into this crazy accent. Um, you have Riley Keough doing whatever she's trying to do with her like vocal stylings in this movie. Um, vocal fry, right? I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's like so aggressive and in your face, but like she nails it. Like she nails it. Like, sure, there are going to be people who are annoyed by this character. Oh, absolutely. Just completely turned off from the movie. But I personally felt like she walked a perfect line of like, of course, she's obnoxious because that's who the character. I mean, that's who the person was in real life, but uh, not to the point where I was like, I got to turn this movie off. Like, this is just getting to be too much. Um, and I think, you know, that probably having Zola there as a good audience surrogate, um, you know, helped even some of that out. But um yeah, you know, it's it's just fun to watch this whole thing unfold. It's the perfect runtime for this type of movie. Um, you know, there it does. So it does get, end very abruptly. It does, but you know, unfortunately, that's kind of how the thread is too. I did go back and you know, obviously look at it after the fact, but um, yeah. yeah, you know, you can only do so much, I guess, with what you're given, and yeah, um, yeah, totally. That's just kind of how it ended up. But you know, there's not. A whole lot of subtext to what's going on it's kind of just a, a fun story but i do think there is some commentary in the visuals about like sex work and um you know i, I think more specifically like stripping um because the the scenes of them in the strip clubs dancing are styled so differently from the rest of the movie which is you know again very aggressive in your face a lot of uh you know, crude and rude stuff going on. But when they are dancing, when they are on stage, it's like very like beautifully shot. Like there's this sort of serene music going on. Like it's clearly a conscious decision by the director, by Janik Sabravo to, um, to set these scenes. And I mean, to, to make these scenes look differently for a very specific reason. And that reason I feel like was to, um, you know, validate the, the work that, they do and 
um, that many women have to do sort of to, to make ends meet. Um, so I thought that that was interesting. Um, you know, again, in, in a story that is mostly just, you're just watching it for the lulls. Um, you know, I, I felt like that was, you know, a, a little bit of commentary, which you come to expect from a 24, right? Like a 24, it's going to be rare that they're going to make something that is just a pure genre movie. Um, you know, that's, that's something that I think. I think this is the um, closest they come, though. I mean, it's pretty close. Yeah, there's there is some commentary, but it's it feels very surface level. There's something there. I mean, that, you know, if you really want to nitpick, there's stuff like the freaking barely lethal or whatever that Haley sure. Steinfeld movie. But like, yeah, as far as like their their high profile projects. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't call this high profile project, but I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, more so than barely lethal or again, if I you mean, go yeah, down, I've never you could probably find, you yeah. know, something. It's, yeah. it's not good. It's very bad. But um, <laughs> but this movie is very good. Um, and like I said, it delivered pretty much on on what I wanted. Um, and yeah, I don't I don't know how much th- more there is to say as far as my my general impressions. I think, uh, you know, you're going to you're going to get what probably what you're expecting to get um, going into this movie. If you've seen the trailers and stuff like that, it's not going to be for everyone. But that's kind of how a 24 rolls. They have a I, you know, I don't know that I necessarily believe in the myth of a 24 vibes, but they do have a very specific audience that, you know, their movies resonate with. Um, really? You don't believe I'm, in that? Man, that's so I'm certain. I am certainly a um, a member of that audience. I don't know. Maybe it's just, you know, I'm in this stupid a 24 group on Facebook and the people in here <laughs> are just absolute morons, but they'll just post like photos of their waffle that they made in the morning ago. This waffle has a 24 vibes. Um, I mean, surely that's a bit, right? Like that's like. I mean, it it, it is, but yeah, it, it, no, of of course it is. But I do feel like I it's a phrase so. <laughs> that almost maybe just in the in this um you know spheres that I'm in, it just it does get a little bit like overused to say that like that's fair. something has a twenty four vibes just because it's like a little off center, you know, from I think you know, it's down pretty, the middle genre a, entertainment or something. Yeah, I think it's especially true for films like this, though. Right. And I think that's where I was trying to come from. Whereas like, I don't know if I would say that about like, I don't know, their highest profile projects. If we go back to like the sort of scale, like I yeah. wouldn't say that like Moonlight has a 24 vibes. I mean, like look that. at, look at, look at some of the movies that these have, this has been compared to like most heavily spring breakers, the Florida project, American honey. They're all a 24 films. Yeah. Like, I was going to, you know, I haven't seen mid nineties, but like, I think of this movie as like sure, similarly, yeah. I mean, that, you could probably connect that. that as well but um but, but anyway yeah, i think I it's mean, that particular type of like sort of like drama comedy mix that's like not an a-tier movie it won't show up in like award season no one's going to talk about it like it's this prestigious film but there are people that really enjoy it exactly yeah but like people that really enjoy it for the reason that i think the the i don't know like this is like so cheesy but like the I think like the thoughtfulness and like the love put into the movie from a very particular angle. I think you don't get that if the same movie is made. They make another studio. They, they make good movies at the end of yeah. the day. Like to me, that's all it, it boils down to. And maybe something has a 24 vibes because I think it's good. like the same way that like certain, certain Blumhouse movies have like a Blumhouse vibe. Yeah. Right? That's the way I think about it at least. Like they're yeah. low budget, but they're like a very particular. But, but Blumhouse is also like it's all the same genre, right? Like Blumhouse sure. is going for the low budget horror stuff. I mean, yeah, of course, there's weird stuff like Whiplash. That was a Blumhouse movie, but um, not Blumhouse vibes though. Yeah, but like you know, A twenty four is all over the map. Yeah, you know, they're they're making movies and yeah, but I think their biggest pops. vibe movies though of are of a, of a similar style and of, yeah, of not one genre, but like a similar flavor. Again, I mean, you know, Spring Breakers, The Florida Project, American Honey, like all A twenty four films, all I think better than spiritual, you know, relatives to this movie. But anyway, Scott, I think we can move on now and talk about the performances in this movie. You know, it's sure. it's a forehand or so to speak you know there's a few few other people who uh who show up but it's really <laughs> that's about some like weird pain. weird like sex work joke there yeah he maybe just, it is. Uh, it's this uh it, you know it's mainly this ensemble of four people you know you did mention taylor page being relatively unknown she was in ma rainey's black bottom last year yeah um, she was like the she was the the granddaughter she was like Ma's daughter. lover or whatever wasn't right she? that's right that's the one. yeah i didn't pick up that on the movie and you said that in the podcast and i was like what? yeah 
<laughs> felt so stupid. Yeah, but that that you know that's really kind of the only thing of note that she's been in. But yeah, the other three people are the kind of actors you feel like you expect to see in an A24 movie, right? Like the caliber, to your point, like somebody like Colvin Domingo, who is not a huge star yet, but he stars in an A24 produced television series, Euphoria. Yeah. Um, Wouldn't say he stars, know, he, but supports. But yeah. He, yeah, sure. He's been in, you know, supporting roles in like some more independent films, like something like, like Ma Ma Could Talk. Yeah, he was in Mario's Black Bottom as well. But, you know, something like If Beale Street Could Talk, which not a 24, but probably has a 24 vibes to it. Maybe just cause Barry Jenkins obviously. And you know, sure. Moonlight was a 24, but um, you know, and then Riley Keough, obviously, you know, miss a 24 herself. I think this is her fourth um, a 24 film. If you count um, American honey, it comes at night and under the silver Lake. I think those are the other, only other ones that she's been in, but that's four. Um, I don't think a 24 once, once under the silver Lake. Yeah, (laughs) probably not. But, you know, she she's obviously very comfortable in this world, you know, uh, but she's also done stuff like Logan Lucky, Mad Mad Max Fury Road, like, you know, big high profile stuff. So I I think that horrible Netflix movie in Tokyo that I can't remember the name of. It had Alicia Vikander in it, too. It was horrible. Sure. I yeah, I did not uh, experience that one. And then Nicholas Braun, as you mentioned, Scott, um, you know, has a major role on a very popular TV series in succession. Um, What did you think about the ensemble as a whole and, you know, the different personalities here? Taylor Page being, like I said, kind of the straight laced audience surrogate. And then you have just sort of three wild personalities with these other three characters. Yeah, I thought the ensemble worked really well. I mean, you were talking about how the like the weird Coleman Domingo accent thing. I thought that worked really well because he's like just like oh, he's yeah. someone who like lives his life trying like trying to hide the fact that he is a pimp. And so like when he gets angry and loses his temper, like his like true side comes out. Obviously, it's a bit it, it feels very exaggerated and hardly realistic. Um, fr- frankly, shocked that that like hotel pool boy attendant guy did not like do more than just say ask her and you know, Zola, if she's okay, that was like crazy that he didn't do more than that in that scene. That was like awful. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think the well, he was also afraid though. I mean, I think that, I mean, that sure. was clear, clear from it, which, you know, again, speaks to Coleman Domingo's performance. I think that yeah. he can get intimidating when he goes, he has a big presence on, on screen. And I think yeah. that he hasn't always shown that in, or he's shown that I think in a more passive way, in some of the other projects that we've seen him in, I think he's in euphoria. I mean, he's like this, I mean, he's um, Zendaya's, I don't know what you were like sponsor, I think is, uh, I guess would be the word for yeah. it. And, you know, he's this more passive personality in Ma Rainey's black bottom, or if not passive, then definitely someone who straddles the fence of being more assertive and more passive. But here, I mean, he has these opportunities, these big opportunities to really assert, you know, how aggressive he can be on the screen. And I think it just speaks to his, you know, the, the breadth of his ability, you know, not to, not to mention his depth of talent as well. And so I think that he's a he's a big standout here. I, I don't know if I'd call Nicholas Braun a standout, um, but I find him just like so funny. Um, the whole cousin Greg persona is just like so colored in this to me. And um, I can't see past that. And, and, you know, he I think he's like cornered the market um, on that type of personality right now. And, you know, if you're going to have a character like this, there's no one better than Nicholas Braun at the moment. Um, cousin, you know, it, it, Succession's great. Everyone should watch Succession. I was like a little skeptical that I watched it recently. It's a phenomenal show. Um, Taylor Page, again, I, I mentioned that I think she was kind of the perfect fit for this role. I think that she plays sort of like the, I don't know, exhaustion of Zola through this weekend and the exasperation of her extremely well. And yeah, I mean, Riley Keough is like fully sending it on this on this personality. Um, really strong performances all around and it's already sort of forehander to use your 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 phrase here and i think with the quality of the performances that you get there's no chance i think for anyone need, yeah. for any anyone else in the further down the supporting cast list to really make any sort of impact yeah like i said you know with riley keogh i think just kind of the whole cast or you know at least the the three supporting roles like to some extent are like all just sort of walking this line very carefully of like if they just if they go an inch further than yeah. the performance might be a little too much but they don't they they you know they tightrope it really well and nicholas braun you know i'm not a fan of when like adult males are playing childlike 
characters, you know, like basically what Adam Sandler has made his entire comedic career off of. Um, and this this role could have gone there. Like it, oh, it, yeah. it comes close, but it, it d- did not cross that line into, you know, the broad comedic territory, I guess. I think there was. Enough. But I think you also have to remember that these are like 20 year olds, right? Like these are not people yeah. who are very old. Sure. And clearly, but, and clearly this character of Derek is incredibly immature. Yeah. There was enough specificity there to, you know, again, make me not turned off by the character. And yeah, I actually find him quite amusing at times. And his relationship with his friendship with the guy who lives, you know, at the, or not lives, but who he meets there at the D- motel. Dion. And obviously resurfaces later. Um, that, that's like it, just that's like so, that, that, that whole stuff. like trait is like so Greg too in succession. It's hilarious. It's just like so funny to see it pop up again. Like the sort of like meek, like I don't really want to talk to you, but now we're talking to you and now I have to like hang out with you and we have to be bros. Yeah. It's like so funny. Yeah. And, you know, again, his stuff with Riley Keough is, you know, just that dynamic is funny of her, you know, just such a out there personality and, you know, ends up sleeping with what, like 10 guys in one night or something. And I think it was uh, more than that. Wh- but yeah, <laughs> yeah. All the all the something while, like um, yeah. you know, he's stuck back in the hotel room or he's wandering around or whatever. And he yeah. knows what's going on. He's not that dumb, but like he, well, he's he's know. hoping that it's not that, but. Right, but yeah, deep but down he knows. knows the truth. Yeah, but yeah, you know, like like you said, he's like going to do whatever he can, literally whatever he can, in the end to um, maintain this relationship, even though he's you know obviously being sort of mistreated the whole time. Uh, and then yeah, you know Taylor Page, I think um, a good steady figure at the the heart of this thing. Um, yeah, you know exhaustion, I think is a good word for it. like even. You know, at the beginning, obviously, she gets sort of enticed into taking this trip, but like it doesn't take long, right? Like they're not even there yet in Tampa. And just her face in the back of the car, just what she does with like her facial expressions there, it's like she's over it already. I think so much of the performance is in that, right? Is so much of the performance is in the facial expressions more so than than the way she delivers dialogue. I mean, that's a part of it, but I think you get. I mean, whatever the saying is about how much of communication is through not is nonverbal or whatever, but like it, that really is true in this role. Yeah, she's over it, but there's also like a, I don't know, a motherly instinct or something that I like that kind of. There's like some out. sense of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there is like, even though obviously a lot of bad things come out of the weekend and they go their separate ways or whatever, there is kind well, of an do, unspoken do bond. <laughs> unspoken bond that remains between the two women um you know during the movie especially when you know uh zola starts kind of becoming the pimp in a way right and telling um you know stephanie how to pose in these photos and you know to up the price and everything so that yeah um they can make more money and um there is kind of a hey like if you're gonna do this Let's do this in a way yeah. that is respectful towards you, right? Like in in a way that that's exactly right. Yeah, I was gonna say she just yeah. has a greater sense of self worth and self respect mm-hmm. than than Stephanie. And I think a large part of that is the way that's. I mean, everything's like cyclical, I suppose. But the way that Stephanie has been treated by X, right? Like the way that she's been yeah. talked down to and been you know been made to be submissive towards, and then you have Zola come along and be like, you know, that's not the way that she thinks about herself. And it's not the way she accepts being treated by other people. And so she's able right. to sort of, I don't know, um, act that way towards her and project that towards her in these moments where she can step in and and be more of that pimp figure for her, I suppose. Yeah, it's impossible to discount, you know, that their gender comes into it. The fact that they're, yeah. you know, both women in this difficult situation where, you know, a man is holding them both hostage in their, in their yeah. own way. And Stephanie has been held hostage for much longer clearly than, than Zola has, but um, yep. maybe just again, because of how they're different, you know, worldviews and personalities and attitudes towards everything. But I think that's part um, of it. And also the financial dynamic too, I'm sure. Okay, Scott, I do want to ask you about this because obviously it's, it's something that you often bring up in movies, but Ooh. there is some use of voiceover narration in this movie, mm-hmm. kind of, um, you know, talk, tying in the whole Twitter thread element of it, right? Like this is, yeah. this is the one part of the movie where you see them really trying to 
um, you know, highlight the roots of the story. And that is, you know, some voiceover elements. Um, it's not, you know, it's not copious or anything like yeah, that. It's not a true Yeah. Was that kind of your take ultimately on the use of it? Yeah, I think it worked well. I think given the roots of the story, right? I think it's perfectly appropriate to have these sort of one-liners, right? Because there's no like, there's no like 240 character yeah. monologue happening in this or whatever. When, when you get the voiceover, it's usually this like one-liner zinger, sort of like side footnote of of in a, of a yeah. sort, and that works I well. Like- I think like the brevity of it keeps it moving. Yeah, what I like is there's like a there's a knowing quality, right? Like it's an omniscient yeah. narrator. She's like, you know, early she's on lived the, the whole weekend where she's like from from now on or from this point on, watch every move that she makes or whatever. Talking about yeah. um, Stephanie talking it's about going to be 48 and, hours know. before I even know this guy's name. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. that that kind of stuff is great. Um, and it, it's twenty going to be twenty four hours before I even hear this one lady speak. You know, the, yeah. the random woman who just shows up, babe. Um, and is is Coleman Domingo's sidekick girlfriend? I guess love her. Um, yeah, it, it's wild. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I I like that kind of stuff. I, I I didn't feel like it took us out of the moment or anything. Like you said, yeah. it's quick and you know funny and and stuff like that. Um, what did you think about the story as a whole, though, Scott? You know, do do you believe it? Like, do you think all of this stuff actually happened? You know, whether it's in the thread. Or and and I will go ahead and say here, you know, the the differences that I the major differences that I noticed between the thread and the movie are, first of all, that, you know, we see in the movie that X ends up shooting Dion um, in the hotel room. Apparently, according at least my understanding in the thread was that Zola wasn't even in the room and she just heard gunshots and then they just started running away. So we don't know whether anyone was actually shot, I guess, if, if the whole thing is to be believed. Um, and then the other thing was at the end, um, obviously, Derek jumps off of the balcony um, because he says he's going to kill himself if, you know, because fuck that up. basically because Riley Keough has a mark on her body um and you know he obviously figures out it's confirmation of what he kind of already knows but um you know he jumps off of the balcony so in the movie he actually hits the ground and like you know he he jumps all the way off apparently when he jumped in real life his pants got hung up on the balcony and he kind of just like hung there um (laughs) and they were actually on the fourth floor so he probably would have died if he, um, you know, had not, if this had not happened, um, or, you know, been very seriously injured. Um, and I tell so, you, I think I this opportunity, because I, I think this character of Derek messing up his own, it would have been funny, yeah. would have been funnier than what actually happened, which is pretty gruesome. Yeah. But what's your take on, you know, sort of the story as a whole, Scott, and the authenticity of it? Look, I obviously have no idea what actually happened. It's an incredible story. Is it believable? It's within reason. Like, I can see that happening. Like, my understanding is that, you know, these types of, like, club scenes, things like that, I mean, they get pretty crazy just from the stories that that I've heard in my own, like, you know, anecdotal life from friends who have been closer to that than I certainly have in my my years post-college. But, yeah, like, is it believable? Sure, it's crazy. It absolutely absolutely is crazy. But I think that it's not outside the realm of, of possibility in my mind. But that's not based on first any real firsthand experience whatsoever. I think overall, like honestly, I think the story and like the narrative is, is the weakest part of the movie. I think it's still funny. I think it's still engaging. It's still a fun time. But there's not much like to me, it didn't really feel like there was much there deeper than the surface. Like it felt like there wasn't any real commentary um, that was like insightful or even really well thought out in the film. Like this is based on a Twitter thread, right? Like there to something that you were saying earlier, like there are limits to what you can do with that, obviously. Um, yeah. But if there was the weakest part, I think it just like kind of was like the, the narrative drive of the film, because there's, there really isn't much propelling you forward other than the fact that, you know, you're going to get a freaking crazy story about to happen. Like that's all that's going to, that's all that propels you forward in this. And that's fine. It works well. But I think that if you're, if you're going into this film looking for something more or something, some like deeper level of commentary, I don't think you're going to find it. Um, I didn't find it, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Still a very enjoyable film. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I think, you know, she's playing, she's doing the most with what she was given here in terms sure. of, you know, this is just a crazy weekend that somebody had. And, you know, in terms of yeah. whether it's believable or not, it happens in Florida. So I believe it like that's ultimately what in it comes Tampa, down no to less. for me. Yeah. It's Florida. Yeah. Um, but Tom Brady think, loves that. You know, so send it. The little things that we've talked about, like, for example, that, um, you know, the, the the way that the dancing scenes are stylized, right? Like I think is done to make a point. Also, you know, sort of this female bond that we talked about um, in the, you know, scenes of sex work that, um, you know, develops between Zola and uh, and Stephanie. I think that's, again, I think that's Janik Bravo doing the most that she could with the it's source It's so interesting how one-sided those are, right? Like it, it was so fascinating to me that, the relationship felt like totally one way, which is like a weird, which was like really weird to me, right? Like I didn't feel like there was much appreciation on the surface. And maybe that's just by nature of the situation or by nature of the perspective of Zola. But like, there's just like, it just felt like kind of weird how little appreciation in those moments, like there's solidarity there, right? Like, like to your point, like it's two women in the situation, Zola very much standing up for, Stephanie, but like it just feels like Stephanie's not returning that favor whatsoever, not standing up for Zola. And I think there's plenty of of perfectly reasonable, you know, reasons. That's like super repetitive. Uh for for that to be the case. Like she's super intimidated, feels very submissive to X, etc. Doesn't really feel like there's a way to stand up for it. But how one-sided that relationship was in that respect, I think didn't surprise me per se, but it did it did take me aback a little bit. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. On that, I mean, I, I just think that's who Stephanie is, and why ultimately Stephanie is not a good person. Sure, yeah, Zola I just think is. it makes it hard to like draw some like deeper meaning yeah. out of it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I guess uh, to to some extent, um, it also kind of makes again, it feel like I mean, a Zola puff piece. But like, I mean, I don't understand it's the, like the tweet thread is from Zola. Like, we should expect it to be a little they gratifying. Do, well, and, and also like they do highlight at one point Stephanie's take yes. on the whole situation, right? Which, it was so tongue in cheek, though. It was like obviously yeah. it felt like a joke. But I mean, you know, again, yeah. they they preface it with saying this was her Reddit post, so like. Yeah, maybe they paraphrased it a little bit, but you know the general vibe I get from that again is that Stephanie not not a really good person, and you know was probably just straight up lying about everything that happened. But um, and he, even in the end, right? Like Zola, when the you know Stephanie gets yanked into the hotel room, she could have just she could have gone. Like that could have been it. Zola could have that could have been her her out. She could have just said, "Forget this, I'm out." But she calls the police. You know she. How would she have gotten back to Detroit? To help. She didn't. She didn't call the police. By the way, <laughs> she didn't call the police. She called X. I thought she did. Did call? Maybe that was. Maybe that was in the thread. She said she called the police. I don't know. But oh, maybe um, she doesn't. She definitely does not call the police. In the, in the she could have Ubered to the airport. I don't know. But that's true. Um, that's fair. She needed her bag. I guess the bags are a big, big. That's thing true. The movie, There's an airport in Tampa. Wow, crazy. There is. I've actually flown into it before. Took I'm a sorry. great Allegiant flight. Um, but. Anyway, Scott, is there anything else you want to add before we move into wrap up on Zola? I don't think so, man. Like, like I said, it's eighty-five minutes, probably around there. Great time. Go in expecting, like, go in with your expectations correct, and you're gonna have a good time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. What's your uh, favorite scene or moment? Yeah, good. There's, there's just so many, right? It's just like this constant string of, of, you know, one gag or another. And I think that it's hard not to sort of just go with sort of the, the last scene where it is like this like culmination of all these people like Stephanie lying constantly, like Derek being like so immature and like overreacting to everything that's happening. Un- maybe understandably so, but like, God, like he went on this trip, like he had to have known what was going to happen. Like he. He's so familiar with what Stephanie does with his life. Like, what is he doing? And then just like Zola's facial expression through all this, just like, what the hell am I dealing with? Um, and then I guess like throwing himself off the balcony and missing the pool was, I don't know, icing on the cake. I, I don't know if I'd call it that, but the the moments before that, I think to me are just kind of sum up, sum up everything that the movie is like building towards in terms of its comedic aspect over the course of the film. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I like a lot of moments as well. I mean, I think the, the hotel room standoff, there's some, you know, yeah. genuine sort of suspense in that uh, yeah, absolutely. scene about what's going to happen. Because, again, I mean, when you don't know the thread, which I did not. Um, and so, you know, well, I, I didn't think I didn't anyone was going to die, but. I, I didn't know. Again, it's it's a it's a crazy story. Yeah, it probably would have been a little bit exploitative if they had made it into a movie after somebody died. But um, you know, you you never know. It, it's it was a wild story, and so I, it's Hollywood, baby. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, that that I thought was a good again because it, it, it's you know played for laughs a lot of scenes, but I thought they were able to really lock in there and um, you know again get some genuine suspense out of what's going to happen. So well done to. Janixa Bravo, you know, haven't really mentioned her name too much, but, you know, female filmmaker, um, very promising. Uh, I think she has one other movie as well, something called Lemon, I think is the name of her other movie. But um, certainly a bigger movie. This one's a bigger movie. This will be a big calling card for her, I would suspect. Um, So, um, and, you know, good for her. This is not just. You know, so, uh, any director could have just taken this source material and just filmed it straight up. And, you know, it probably would have made for an entertaining movie. But I think she's actually, you know, doing some stuff stylistically. And, um, you know, there's a there's a genuine craftsmanship, I think, from uh, behind the camera that, um, you know, gives this movie an extra layer, I think. So good on her. Uh, what's would you your... would you agree that with Owen Gleiberman that this movie is a youth quake? What's your score for Zola, Scott? <laughs> I could have answered honestly. I could have answered your question when you just said, "Would you Owen agree Gleiberman. with Owen Glaberman?" I would have just said no. But <laughs> he really liked the movie, Scott. He may have liked it as much, if not more, than you. Oh wow! Uh, so you're gonna have to stew on that for a little bit, or change your at mind here. At least he didn't call second. it ghetto. At least he didn't call it ghetto test. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, eight point fun film. 8.8 for me. Uh, definitely one of my favorites from this year. Um, you know, glad that I was finally able to see it after a year and a half and that it didn't disappoint. A uh, very fun movie. And I recommend checking it out if you're of a specific audience. It's not for everyone. If you like A24 vibes, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, Scott, we're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we're going to have. Uh, a couple of news stories to to uh, discuss, including some casting news for Florian Zeller's follow-up to The Father, as well as some more controversy involving Quentin Tarantino. Uh, we should have some interesting discussion there. Uh, we'll be right back uh, with those stories. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, uh, we've talked previously about Florian Zeller's follow-up to The Father, which is going to be called The Son. Um, and we have some new casting news uh, for this movie involving, uh, you know, an Oscar-nominated actress from last year. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, so I, I will say I'll add a little bit more color for the listeners who maybe didn't catch it with the last time we talked about it. But He's not just creating a follow-up to The Father called The Son just for the lulls. It is another one of his plays that he's written. He is adapting called The Son. We'd previously talked about how I believe it was Hugh Jackman and was it Laura Dern are playing are in this movie? Yes, Hugh Jackman and Laura Dern, I think, to play two of the leads in The Son. And then we got news this week that Vanessa Kirby will be joining them, uh, presumably not playing The Son, but potentially a daughter or a friend of The Son. Maybe a girlfriend of the sun. Who knows? I didn't look too much into this. Maybe it said in the article um, when it when it was released what exactly she'll be playing. But Scott, frankly, I don't need to know what role she's playing because Vanessa Kirby is awesome. And I'm excited that she's in this movie. I think she's continuing to show whether it be last year in Pieces of a Woman, which did get her an Oscar nomination. I think we were a bit mixed on that on the whole. But I think at least I can speak for myself saying I thought that her performance was really strong in that film. I think her performance earlier this year in The World to Come also debuted at Sundance, I believe. I don't know if it debuted at Sundance, but it did play at Sundance. Um, was also a really strong performance with um, Catherine Waterston as well in that cast. And, you know, I think she's she's continuing to build this resume of stuff like Mission Impossible and Hobbs and Shaw. Like she can do that side of things, but she can also do the more serious dramatic pieces as well that will get her this sort of awards buzz that we've been seeing because 
obviously she I don't know if she ever won an Emmy for her role as Margaret in The Crown, but she was definitely nominated for one, if not both of the seasons she was in and generally got a lot of, um, you know, strong recognition for her turn as you know the queen's sister in that show. And so I think it's this is just another sign of an actress like that wants to continue to push, you know, the limit of what she's been capable of doing, not just from an awardsy Oscar Beatty perspective, but in these types of roles that challenge her to bring new elements. And I think that what we saw with the father, you know, last year and Florian Zeller, what he was able to do adapting that from stage to screen is that he's able to take something which, you know, ostensibly performed very strongly in the theater into something that also performs strongly in its own right as, as a piece of cinema. And I think that what Florian Zeller was able to get out of Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman in that is really promising. Uh, if he's able to work similarly with other actors and actresses, you know, in this case, Hugh Jackman, Laura Dern, Vanessa Kirby, these are all incredibly strong performers um, combined with Florian Zeller. It gives me a lot of optimism about this adaptation being just as good, maybe even better than the father, which is a really high bar because the father is, you know, one of my favorite films from the last 12 months. Yeah, no, uh, Vanessa Kirby, I think is very talented. I just caught up at the world to come recently and that might be her best performance to, to date. I think she's really, really strong in that movie. Um, sure. But yeah, I mean, I enjoy, I've enjoyed her in the, the genre stuff as well. I kind of, uh, had a, a secret hope that she would be considered for the next 007. I thought that would kind of be a fun bit of casting, but, um, you know, it doesn't Still seem might. like that's going to happen. But yeah, it's possible. But uh, um, who is like yeah. the favorite one right now? Is it, uh, it's, I mean, it's Lashana Lynch, right? It's Lashana Lynch. She's going to be in, um, no time to die as sort of the, well, she's another agent, double O agent. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe James gets killed off in this one, but, um, I wouldn't mind. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I'm excited about this movie, Scott. You know, I also thought the father was incredible. Um, and, you know, I, I think Florian Zeller showed some real talent for um, adaptation with that movie that, um, you know, I have no reason to believe he won't bring again with the son. Um, and, you know, he obviously got some fantastic performances out of his whole cast in the father. I mean, I thought that whole ensemble was excellent, not just Anthony Hopkins. Um, and he's building a nice ensemble uh, here to do so again. So looking forward to this one. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, such, it's also just like going from one end of like the sort of spectrum of focusing on a, you know, a geriatric old man with, you know, failing mental health to the other end of the spectrum. And I believe the son is about, you know, a teenager who's suffering from depression. Um, is my understanding is, is what the subject of the film is about. So really, I mean, mental health clearly of keen interest of his, but going with very different, I guess, portrayals of or, or different exemplars of of, of failing mental health of, of, of sorts. And I believe Laura Dern and um, Hugh Jackman are playing the parents. And yeah, I'll be interested to see what role Vanessa Kirby plays. I hope she's not playing a high schooler or a teenager because that would be atrocious if she was. Because No way. <laughs> give me um, timothy chalamet man he i would say find someone more interesting because he's just like he's just like the pick for everything right like i mean there's yeah, like a, a young male role give it to Timothy. he's chalamet. also good i would so. say give it to paul mescal i mean he's already played a high schooler you can do it again yeah i mean connell definitely know, doesn't suffer from any sort of depression with, in that show so with a, with age uh it becomes harder but yeah maybe sure um scott the the item i wanted to discuss here uh you know, is some the never ending controversy um, around Quentin Tarantino and, you know, specifically his last film generated a lot of controversy once upon a time in Hollywood. We talked about that a couple of years ago when we reviewed it. It's come back around now because he has published a novel based off of the book or based off of the film and, um, you know, has been running the interview cycle. He's done Mark Marin, Joe Rogan, the big picture podcast on the ringer. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he's been asked about this whole Bruce Lee controversy for people who don't know um, or haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, there's a scene involving Bruce Lee, played by Mike Moe in the movie, um, gets and he, it's on the set of a movie. He challenges he's, you know, acting sort of very cocky about his martial arts skills. He challenges Brad Pitt's um, Cliff Booth to a fight and the fight ends up with um, Cliff 
throwing Bruce Lee into a car basically for kind of a comedic moment and making him look a little silly. Um, and, you know, there was a, there was controversy at the time. Um, as often with Tarantino, the controversy was unwarranted, in my opinion, um, about this particular scene and, you know, whether it was disrespectful to, you know, the memory of Bruce Lee and whatnot. Um, but now it's sort of resurfaced because he's been Tarantino has been asked about this whole controversy um, on multiple of these, you know, podcasts and shows and stuff that he's done interviews on. Um, and it's kind of doubled down on, you know, his portrayal of Bruce Lee in the movie um, saying that, well, you know, if you actually read, you know, the history of Bruce Lee, he was actually, he thought very little of American stuntmen. He was kind of a D bag is kind of what uh, uh, Tarantino's comments are implying. And, you know, this has really set people off, including Bruce Lee's daughter, Shannon, who, um, has really ripped Tarantino a new one uh, for these comments. Scott, I, I, I'm, you know, here's the thing. I, I do think that the uh, the original controversy was pretty unwarranted because the, uh, I mean, the movie's called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, first of all. It's a fairy tale. It's right there in the title. Um, you know, the movie ends with Sharon Tate not being killed by the Manson family. It's obviously Wait, that's not what happened in real life. Yeah, amazing. It's obviously what? playing with history oh in the way that Tarantino often does. Um, you don't but say. I wish that he had just said that in the interview, right? Like, I don't, I don't understand really why he's come out now full force trying to defend yeah. his his take, or, you know, on Bruce Lee. As I, I mean, I don't know, right? Like, I don't, I haven't, I don't know too much about Bruce Lee um, to know whether you know he's he's well, telling he the, the truth or not, for sure. whether he's accurate or not. Um, in what he's saying, I would, I mean, I would like to think somebody who's as much of a film sort of historian as Tarantino um, is, you know, you know, would, would get his, would have his facts straight here, but you know, his daughter, his daughter responding. I mean, I'm in two minds about that too. Cause like, of course his daughter's going to stand up for him. Right. Like uh, who, who else would, but um, yeah, I don't know. She's come out pretty strongly, which kind of does give me a little bit of pause. Um, the one thing which I don't think holds any water is that, you know, he made the comment that Bruce Lee thought very little of American stuntmen. And people took this as being some sort of racist remark because they're like, oh, well, Bruce Lee was American, um, which obviously is true. But he was also I mean, he was Chinese American. He grew up in China. Uh, he spent his first you know, years on film sets in China. He saw martial arts, martial artists in China. It is possible for him to be a Chinese American and also not have respect for American stuntmen. Uh, that's not, I, I don't, I did not take that as some sort of, uh, well, he's not American or whatever type of, you know, racist remark. I think that part of it all is silly, but I don't know. I do question Tarantino's sort of, uh, like I said, his, his decision to double down and try to defend his depiction of Bruce Lee as an accurate depiction, because I think, well, so yes. much of his movies are accurate. Like, I don't know why he's so concerned with this portrayal of well, Bruce Lee. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, you know, it, it, this movie, right? Like, it rewrites history. Like you said, it's obviously not accurate. But it's it also, like, it has very specific and authentic period details to it. Um, yeah, and but the, so, the characters aren't that, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I Yes and no. I mean, they're, they're heightened in the way that Tarantino's characters often are. But um, Well, I mean to yeah, say it's, I, like... Rick Dalton is not a real person. Like sure, sure, yeah. Yeah. He's not, but he's inspired by real people, right? He's inspired by people like sure. Aldo Ray and George Maharis and these old sort of serial totally. actors, but totally. Yeah. But like I think it's safe to say that there's not a single character who is like true to life in the movie. Yeah, I I would say that maybe with the exception of Sharon just because I think he's trying to do something um, you know, pretty specific maybe. with breathing life into that person but yeah the, the point is like you know i don't think i don't think tarantino would try to like defend his depiction of i don't know hitler or something in inglorious bastards right like of course that's not accurate of course it's you know very heightened from the real thing and you know bruce lee i'm sure that this depiction of him is very heightened i don't think he's probably as uh you know much of a perfect individual as his daughter might imply, but I also don't think he probably was as much of an a-hole as Tarantino was saying. I mean, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle as it often is. Um, 
But yeah, yeah like his, I said, his whole resoluteness about this whole thing to me is just like, dude, just like shut up, <laughs> like just, just stop, just stop talking I mean, about it. <laughs> yeah, here's the thing. Like, I I just I hate interviewers even asking about this type of stuff in the first place. But he brings it up. He also brings it up though. Yes, yeah, he 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 does. That is true. Um, but yeah, no, just to sort of a general point, I just feel yeah. like. Number one, it leads lends credence to this thing, which I don't really think deserved any credence in the first place. But number two, you're just trying to get like the the hot take or whatever. And um, I mean, it's their job. You know, I don't think you can really blame them. Yeah, I, I, I know, but yeah, from from a director, it'd be like someone someone saying to you that like you know you shouldn't defend this guy because sure. he's probably guilty or whatever. Yeah, yeah. like it's your job. From, like you have to. From Quentin's perspective, I think he probably should have run that by his PR team, like. Quentin what, doesn't what have a PR team. <laughs> There's no way that guy consults yeah, PR maybe, people on the reg. Maybe not. Maybe not. But, you know, he, and he comes up with an interesting sort of point about it, too, that like and he should have just rested on this point. Right. Cliff wins the fight by tricking um, Bruce Lee. And he says he talks all about this, I think, in the Mark Marin interview, um, maybe about how, you know, we specifically see in the movie that um, he has a he has a strategy of like he lets Bruce Lee like do his signature move on the first, cause it's best two out of three, basically uh, on the first one and knock him down. And then, you know, now that he knows the move or whatever, he is, you know, more equipped to, um, to defend it the next couple of times. Um, and so, you know, he makes the point that Cliff kind of wins the fight through trickery, not by being a better fighter than Bruce Lee, uh, which again was something that people were mad about. Like, Oh, well, you know, this guy would have never beaten Bruce Lee in a fight. Well, of course not. It's a freaking fairy tale movie, but anyway, yeah, to, to me, it just, it just, okay, I guess I'll start, I'll go piece by piece here. I'll go layer. A, I, this is so, this is so boring to me. Like, honest to God, I cannot believe that we're still talking about this. And that goes <laughs> yeah. to like both sides of it. It go, like, it goes both to the fact that it was originally a controversy at all. And it goes to the fact that like Quentin Tarantino is deciding to make, continue to make this like a bigger deal, a bigger and bigger deal by like defending his like stance. Second, like, it's so clear. And, I think every auteur to some extent has this characteristic, like how much of an egotist he is. Like he has to be right about this. Like he has to explain why he's right and the right. point that he's right. And like, dude, you're not going to convince Bruce Lee's daughter that you're right. Um, and the people who are agreeing with Bruce Lee's daughter, they're not going to be convinced by what, by what you're saying. Like they're just not going to be convinced. And so that that just kind of makes me chuckle, like sort of like the egotism involved with like having to be right. Unfortunately, I myself find uh, find myself trying to explain why I'm right in conversations similar in similar methods, which probably doesn't say good things about me, but I can relate on that on that level. Um, sometimes I, I should just give them up and I'm getting better about that. But, you know, it's still a work in progress. And then the last part, the last part is that I, I was listening to the big picture. So his interview with Sean Finnessy and Chris Ryan, I don't think Amanda Dobbins was on and he actively brings it up in the interview. Like they're not talking about yeah. it. And then he actively brings it up and is like trying to dunk on Sean Finnessy and explain to him why his like theory that it it doesn't like this whole argument at all doesn't matter because it's all just in, you know, Brad Pitt's character's head the whole time. And it's like not like sure. not only is the movie fake, like it's not even real, but like in the movie, the memory it's just a, it's just Brad Pitt's perspective. Yeah, he's on the roof, right? He's, he's when he's on the roof and yeah. he's, you know, and, remembering and this. Like, and you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just like telling Sean that he's just like flat out wrong. And I'm like, oh my god, dude, you're getting like the free out on this, and you're not even taking it. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> so funny. Yeah, I mean, look. Ultimately, the la the final thing I'll kind of say is I I do think the reason why I just view some of this stuff still with skepticism, even though I think there's more water to this one than past ones. It's just, there's just like this, this never ending campaign to cancel Tarantino. And I just, I don't think he has done anything worthy of cancel for whatever reason, just something about his movies, the people who don't like them, they cannot be fit with just saying, I don't like the movie. They cannot be content with just saying, I don't like the movies. They're not for me. They have yeah. to say, no, there is something, you know, more objectionable about, about yeah. these movies. Like, I don't know. Is it what is it? Is it the foot thing? Right? Is the fact that he? Like, I think it's it's the old history thing. Movies? I think it's the old history thing. People feel yeah. it's like irreverent or disrespectful to history. I, yeah, but there's also the subset of people who think he like hates women and all this stuff, which is well, 
I think is crazy. You could, yeah, you could make that case about so many other directors that like than him. Like, sure. I don't know if you just watch his movies. Like, I just think that's such BS. But um, well, it's but the anyway. same people who are saying like Martin Scorsese is like sexist too because he only gave Anna Paquin exactly three yeah because she didn't have any lines in The Irishman. But um, anyway, uh, all right, Scott. I think on that note. Um, that should just about do it before we do go. I do want to Ooh. give a shout out because I didn't mention this up front. Um, I watched my new favorite film of the year this past weekend um, <laughs> with summer of soul, the quest love documentary uh, that like premiered it. at Sundance. I did not get to catch it at Sundance, um, but went to see it in theaters on Saturday afternoon and man, seeing it in theaters on 4th of July weekend was just like the perfect experience for this movie it's a documentary about the 1969 Harlem Culture Festival, um, which was sort of known as the Black Woodstock. It took place the same summer as of Woods as Woodstock, but was you know really a celebration of Black culture and Black music, and was attended almost exclusively by Black people, um, featuring artists like Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Sly and the Family Stone, BB um, King, and you know this is all footage. It contains all footage that had never been seen before until yep. Questlove dug it out of whatever basement. And I think he, he gets, you know, he makes some really good salient points towards the end of the movie about why it is that we never saw this, um, you know, footage before how how something this monumental could have stayed buried for so long. Um, and that, yeah, that's really the word that comes to mind for me is monumental. Like my jaw was just like on the floor watching most of this movie. Like the fact that this, thing existed that it stayed buried for so long that the footage is like as high quality as i mean the the footage is unbelievable like how well, i mean it's it's restored I mean, it's but been yeah. restored of course yeah, but yeah. like still like it's just it's unbelievable like the shots of the faces and everything yeah. and um you know the stuff he interweaves with the concert footage like um is just really effective i think like you know there's this whole there's an early moment with the fifth dimension where they're watching their own performance um from the festival for the it's clear you know they're watching it for the very first time and it's very emotional and um you know again some of the stuff that takes place during the festival like at one point you know they sing martin luther king jr's favorite song basically and mavis staples tells a whole story about how you know she got asked by sister mahalia jackson to sort of join her in singing and um it's just really moving and inspiring in a lot of moments and um, yeah, yeah, I was I was absolutely blown away by it, um, and imp- very impressed by Questlove um, his his filmmaking too, because it's not just you know you could have just showed the concert right, and that would have made a good movie, but um, no, I think he's made a really interesting you know conversation piece as well. Um, yeah, he was in addition clearly to very just thoughtful. had some big emotional moments. Yeah, very thoughtful. Um, yeah. So I couldn't recommend this movie enough. It's on Hulu right now, so if you can't if it's not showing around you, you can't get out to the theater by all means, check it out on Hulu. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I saw, I saw, I did see this at Sundance. I saw this at like late. It was a it, like 1am. Mm-hmm. It was, I think it was the first night. And I already watched two movies that night. Um, and it, it was like one of those movies where I watched this and I'm like, Scott, whenever, when and if Scott sees this, he's going to absolutely love it. To me, it, it didn't strike the, at the same I guess I would say depth as it struck you. And that doesn't surprise me just based on my, my lesser connection to, to music. And um, in, in that respect, I was certainly impressed by that. I will say that it was a very impressive yeah. piece of work. I think that there, for me, what I was kind of, what, what would have hit me more is that I thought there was even more of like the commentary to go alongside it, to maybe bridge the gap, bridge the gap for me of, of where I think where I needed to be as a viewer to like really engage with the conversation more, not being nearly as familiar with, you know, forget the Harlem culture fest, which I think will a lot of people may not be familiar with at all. But I think, you know, the, even like the bands and the, and the cultural relevance of some of these bands, like I, I didn't have that sort of connection, even knowing who, I mean, obviously I know who like Stevie wonder is and things like that, but um, I think, I think I was missing some context to, to really connect with it fully. Maybe I'm, just trying to explain why I, I didn't love it as much as you did. But um, yeah, it still was something that I think I gave it four stars when I saw it. Very strong filmmaking. Very interested to see if Questlove will, like what he'll do next, if he'll even do something yeah. else, right? I think it's clear he had a very particular thing in mind when making this documentary. He 
had a particular conversation to use your words. And I think that's very, uh, very appropriate. Like he had a very convers like a very particular conversation he wanted to have around this. And now will he go make another documentary? Maybe talking about a tangentially related topic or a similar theme, or will he make a narrative movie next? I'm, I'm curious to see what he'll do. Yeah. And yeah, last thing I'll say, I, I, I think even for people who aren't, into this type of music i think i found it because I, I, I mean i don't listen to a ton of this type of music i i found it riveting like still like i just some of the performers like sly stone is just like awesome like he's just such a cool dude and then nina simone like when she they i yeah. think he rightly sa saves her for the end because when she walks out there it's just like you just can't take your eyes off of her like as a performer and everything she's just like mesmerizing but yeah um, it's it's phenomenal highly recommend i might try to check it out again in theaters if it's still around in a couple weeks um it was that good but yeah uh, all right that'll do it for this episode of some like it scott where can our listeners find you on the socials scott at uh, shelton 2013 on letterboxd and you can find me at scarvy dent uh please don't forget to check out our podcast as well at media plug pods uh we also have our patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods um, and of course even if you can't support us over there Write, like, rate, review, subscribe, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And uh, we hope you will join us for our next episode of the podcast. Scott, we're finally, we're finally going back to the MCU uh, with the long-awaited Black Widow coming up on the next episode of Some Like It, Scott. But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road. Yeah.